All right, should we get started? Of course. It's recording. That's always good. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. We're sitting with uh, Dr. Tracy Newman. She loves being referred to as doctor. It's my favorite. <laughs> and we're just have a couple questions. You want to start? Was that a joke? Like, do you actually hate being called I hate doctor? Being yeah. Because yeah. I've made had a mistake it, I've had email it. once. <laughs> I've had it both ways. Like, my undergraduate advisor, and I think this is why I immediately loved him, is because he was like, he was like, you don't have to call me doctor. You can. Call me Chet. Call me Dr. Defonso. Just don't call me Chester. <laughs> I was like, all right. That's yeah, funny. don't call me Chester. It's like, <laughs> so like, immediately I was like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to work. Do you ever have students try to give you a nickname? Not to my face. Oh. <laughs> I meant in a, like a... Do you know something? No, else I meant in an endearing way, like sometimes. No, no, I don't know that I endear myself that much. Okay. Um, no, no, to my knowledge, I have not gotten gotten a nickname. Have you had the accidental mom yet? No, God, no. I don't think I seem motherly. <laughs> I've definitely I mean, I don't have kids, people. and so I don't yeah. know that I... Come across, come across that. that I don't way. think I've ever almost said mom, but I know I've almost said dad because a lot of people I've, well, a lot of yeah. like, like, and like, just because like they remind me so much of my dad and I'm like. I definitely did it in high school and maybe once in undergrad, but I don't think the person heard me. Like, <laughs> Everybody else in was like. Yeah. You get misses, right? Oh, Which is yeah. sort of a concept. I don't, I actually don't get misses that often mm-hmm. either. Um, and if I do, I usually get it. In an email, not I can't think of anyone ever addressing because if me you as told Mrs. them to my face. don't call me doctor, but yeah. they don't know how to. I do tell them specifically to call me Tracy. Yeah, um, and if they don't feel comfortable doing that, call me professor. Uh huh. Um, but sometimes I still get misses in an email, which I, it does not bother me that much. It just baffles me, um, particularly because I am married, but I have I have my own name, so yeah. I would not be Mrs. Newman under any circumstances. Right. So I'm just kind of like looking for my grandma, basically. <laughs> Um, but grandma's here? This is, yeah, no, no. Um, I didn't know this, she could answer that question. Yeah, but this is sort of, it is sort of like a chronic women in academia question, mm-hmm. right? Usually men get called doctor or professor, and often women get called Mrs. Yeah. Um, and this this is annoying. Um, yeah, the big, uh, was it last year, the big push to have all the women in all fields put, if they were doctors, yeah. the doctor on their Twitter handle yeah, yeah. and stuff. Did you feel pressure, like, that you should start going by doctor or no? No. No. Um, You're I like, I got it. it. No, I get Well, I mean, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, I understand that push. And I think, I mean, I also, I think that's just not my persona. Yeah. And I, it's not, so I also don't feel like I spend a lot of time Worrying. Is this actually recording? Yeah, I, say, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about whether or not people are taking me seriously or seeing yeah. me as credible. Um, I kind of assume they do, and if they don't, I don't really care. I like uh, that. So, but I mean, I also understand. I think a lot of women, particularly younger women or women who look young or women who are like short, you know, like small women or anything that sort of makes you seem young, yeah, um, get undermined a lot, right, uh, in these ways, and so feel that they have to maintain, you know, these sort of sharp boundaries to protect their expertise or they're not taken seriously. I think that you could see also by going by your first name is also another mechanism, like defense mechanism to that too. Like, I don't have to, like, to your undergrad students particularly, I don't have to prove anything to you. Like, I am the professor, I am the doctor, but I don't need to be called that, so you can call me Tracy. Yeah, and I I feel like the thing that I really learned from my first year of teaching was... If I, I tried very hard my first year of teaching to sort of 
act like a professor mm. and, and present myself in lecture the way I thought a professor should pre- present themselves. And that's just not my personality, and it didn't work. Yeah. You know, it wasn't that like, I didn't have a good rapport with the students. I was doing things in class that felt really uncomfortable. Um, and so I think that that... I think whatever is comfortable for you is probably the thing that makes you seem the most credible. Yeah, I mean, unless yeah. you're being sort of mansplained and undermined the way that happens to women and then by all means say, Step it up say doctor, <laughs> please call me doctor, you know. Right. Uh, but yeah. Right, one of those, it's doctor to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else can call me this. <laughs> you you have to call there. me doctor. <laughs> right, right. They always sit in the back of the class. Of course. Oh. <laughs> Where else the would they sit? The hat, yes. yeah. Oh, and the look yeah. of judgment. <laughs> Their hand goes up like this high. No one can see that on the podcast, but you know. You know what I'm talking about. It's true. Do you want to ask her any other questions? Sure. I know, she came prepared with questions. I came with, with a list of questions. I see these because on the list, yes. I'm more free-flowing, and I know you already, but she was like, i got to ask her some questions. Well, some, sometimes it's nice to, like, you know, have... Yeah, you knew our last person better. That's than right. Me, so. That's right. Okay, so I I did Google stalk you, and I'll I'll admit that, right right off the I'll bat. Be interested to hear what but, you <laughs> Not well with my CNN <laughs> searching abilities. I didn't go too deep, so don't worry. I wasn't like calling my friends and was like, "Hey, can you run a background check really quickly? I need to get some dirt." Um, so like, where were you born? Slash, where did you grow up? Because I noticed you went to U of M, and then you went to Cornell for your master's, and then you went to NYU, and so I was like wondering where you, your journey started. I was actually born in Midland, and I grew up in Traverse City. Yeah, my grandma lives in Midland. <laughs> it's a good place to get my grandma still lives in Traverse City. It's a good place to, to keep grandmas. But yeah, no, we moved to Traverse City when I was five. Uh, so that's where I went to school, high school. Oh, wow. And then went to Michigan like you often do. Michigan, Michigan State, if you are from this state, right? So, yeah. Yes. Or Michigan Tech. I didn't Michigan. go to Michigan Tech. No, you just worked up there. I went to Northern. You went to Northern. Yeah. Okay. Very different. Yeah, that, I understand. You I'm, just I apologize. stepped in a can of worms. <laughs> it was not, not intentional. <laughs> no, I was also born in Midland. Oh, oh you were? Wow. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm from Bay City. Okay. But, like, my, my grandma lived in Midland, and so, like, my whole mom's family lived in Midland, and so... Bay City's hospital didn't have a great record at that time that I was born into this world. It has since gotten better. But at the time I was born, my mom was like, yep, nope, we're going to, going to Midland. Going to Midland. So, okay. And then my other question, oh, I'll just go into them. Uh, your focus is on, like, Pittsburgh, because I noticed you've written a lot about Pittsburgh. What drew you to, like, the city? Was it, was it Mr. Rogers? Because you can tell me. It's actually my husband. Oh, really? Who is not Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Although I will tell you, so growing up in Midland for my first five years, my next door neighbor, uh, who is my best friend, of course, because we were the same age, and she was my next door neighbor. Um, her mom dated Mr. Rogers. No out, way. Which that's wild. We thought was the coolest thing. That's you might so imagine. cute. And her dad was a pastor, so her mom. He's very similar. Yeah. Type, yes. Um, but yeah, so that's my that's there's my Mr. Rogers connection for you. She has more Mr. Rogers questions. You better be not, prepared. Not really. No. It's because I just watched the documentary, and so like. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I, oh, um, it is so good. I cannot more recommend a documentary than that one because it just okay. is like so relevant to now because like it, it basically I'll tell you the conclusion is basically like we need to bring back this essence of kindness yeah. that Mr. Rogers just constantly emulated and so like that's what I'll tell you is the conclusion and so then that doesn't entice you I don't know what will 
I haven't seen it yet either, but I intend to. Yeah, eventually, though. (laughs) Make it on the list, but I I really have no Mr. Rogers connections or stories. I'm All sorry. right, but then like what well, was it? That, I ended up writing yeah. about Pittsburgh. It was purely coincidental. I actually, I mean, I actually quite like Pittsburgh. It's a, a lovely city. I love Pittsburgh. Have you been, yeah, you Pittsburgh? my sister yeah, went to school there. It's great. I really like it. We're going next weekend, um, not this coming, but the following. Not that you didn't know that. Anyways, so uh, we want to no, track your movements. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, if you're stalking me, then you know you can follow me. But no, so uh, it was funny. I I was I knew I wanted to write about deindustrialization, which is not really what I ended up writing about at the end of the day. But I, you know, I sort of had this question about why you know certain places had been allowed to decline the way they had. Why mm-hmm. it seemed like there was no effective public policy response to intercede. Um, and I initially, so you know, I was at MIU for my PhD, and I was initially thinking of writing about Detroit because I, you know, I'd grown up in Michigan and grown up coming into Detroit a little bit when I was well, not grown up, in college. I'd come in Detroit a little bit, and it was the late '90s, so wasn't looking great, right? Yeah. And uh, and so I was thinking, well, maybe I'd write about Detroit and Windsor because I wanted to do mm. something transnational. I thought looking at you know Canada or the UK might be an interesting comparison to understand how a place with a different set of um, social policies, right, welfare, welfare state policies made the outcomes look different. And, you know, I got thinking about it, and Detroit and Windsor don't really make sense as a great comparison because mm. the auto industry, Detroit is so central to the American auto industry, but Windsor isn't really central. It's, a, you know, it's the branch plan economy thing. Um, right. And so my husband actually grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, oh, okay. and we were driving through. It was funny. It was the, I was bringing him home to meet my family, and his, his family had left Pittsburgh by this point, but... So we're driving through Pittsburgh, and we stayed with some family friends there. And you know, they took me on a tour, and were sort of showing me the mall that used to be a mill mm-hmm. and the sm- with the smokestacks in it, and talking about the downtown redevelopment. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I like the city. And then you know, came to Michigan, visited my family, and we went back through Hamilton, Ontario, which. My, Paul, my husband, had never lived in, but had, that's where his parents met because his father was a metallurgy. Mm. Um, well, he's getting a degree, uh, an engineering degree, but anyways, some sort of metallurgical engineering uh, stuff. Alchemy. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely <laughs> an alchemy. It was definitely alchemy. Um, so, um, we, but we did the same thing. We stayed with family friends there, and they drove us around, and they showed us similar kinds of things and told me the same kinds of stories. And so I went back and talked to my advisor about it, and we thought that made a good a good comparative case study because you ended up with cities that were... I mean, Pittsburgh was a lot bigger than Hamilton, mm-hmm. historically. It was not true now. But um, they were both the centers of their respective national steel industries, and steel industries uh, for most of the 20th century were the, you know, the most important yeah. um, part of the economy or, and one of the most important inputs to the economy. So that's how I ended up uh, with that. And then when my friends were all going to... Cuba and the Bahamas to do their dissertation research in Mexico. Everyone was in Mexico City for a while. I really regretted. <laughs> do you think like now, because like um, Pittsburgh has since developed into like sort of like this really big tech industry. Like when we were there, they had like all like the self-driving cars and stuff. And like, do you think like you'll revisit like the topic like now that like they're mm. becoming really a technology hub? No. <laughs> I can't seem to get away from Pittsburgh in my research. My new project is very different, and uh-huh. uh, the, to the extent that Pittsburgh will pop up in the stuff I'm working on now, uh, it's still in kind of its 1960s urban renewal era self that I, I would be talking about, which is just because um, one of their urban renewal people, I mean, one of the big guys involved in that, went to India and was involved in uh, urban mm. renewal in Calcutta. And so... Wow. It seems that I cannot get get away from Pittsburgh, uh, which I quite like. But uh, no, I, I will say I'm not. Um, I think probably I 
written, at least in a book-length sense, everything I want to write about post-industrial cities. Uh, I still mm. find it quite interesting, and I'm quite quite interested specifically in um, kind of these, these economic development and urban development models that I was writing about with Pittsburgh, and, and Pittsburgh is a place where a lot of those models develop in the yeah. mid-20th, late-20th century. Um, but... Yeah, I would. I pay less attention to contemporary Pittsburgh than you might think. I mean, I'm actually quite <laughs> obsessed with um, the pickle festival. That yeah, have, which I have yeah. not been to. And anyways, but I haven't been to it. But we have a pickle from our for our Christmas tree. It's in July. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, so I'm not. I. I should be more interested in these sort of more recent economic transformations around tech hubs than I actually am. Uh, I feel like I'm just like a broken record on the subject because I was like, you know, it's just every 20 years is the same thing. It's just the new technology. They do the same studies. Mm -hmm. They do, you know, over. I, I was actually in Pittsburgh when they were waiting to hear about the Amazon bid. I was oh, yeah. Talk there. And, you know, I went to uh, a talk on that. Um, and they, you know, there's some academics and, um, people from the community talking, and I was just like, this is, you people have been having the same conversation, well, not you specific people, but you Pittsburghers, um, Yins. who do these things. Yeah, since the Pittsburgh, yeah. You know that term? Yins, Yins is, is y'all for Pittsburgh. Yeah, they've got their own dialect. Yeah, Yins, Yins have been having this uh, same conversation I have to since put something the 1950s. In. I can't just sit here quietly. I've got to add <laughs> Just because I brought like, a couple of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Dialect is very interesting. Yeah, um, for sure. So, yeah. yeah, my sister went to graduate school there, so we visited a bunch. I went to the Andy Warhol Museum a lot. That's, a great That's really all I remember. Yeah. Going up the uh, vernacular. Yeah, yeah. That, it's a nice city. Yeah. It's easy to drive to from here. Not easy to drive around once you get there because yeah. those bridges close a lot. Yeah, when I visited, I flew in, and so, like, the Uber driver, like, the whole time was, like, talking about how, like, that's where they filmed Batman. And so uh -huh. I was, like, in, I was like instantly intrigued. I was, like, oh. So he's, like, he's like yeah, this and this. And I'm, like, hmm, all right, all right. They filmed one of the Batman scenes at Michigan State while I was there. Which one? The one um, where they go to the fancy guy's, um, like, house. It, it was It's the newer Batman with Ben Affleck. Oh. Batman vs. Superman, that one. I haven't seen that. Oh yeah, they're at the a party, and it's in, it's inside our new um, like modern art museum. Oh. Yeah, so watch and look out for the Broad Art Museum, guys. <laughs> yeah, I sort of feel like uh, like going off like the broken record. Like um, I've written a lot about the 1913-1914 Keweenaw Copper Strike in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and I, I feel a lot like a broken record now. As everyone's like, "Oh, are you going to revisit it again?" And I'm like, "No." Yeah, I want to do something different. I don't. Now. I don't yeah. want to write about the strike anymore. Like, yeah. I want to look at other stuff. Like, yeah. Can I yeah. please get away from this? Yeah. <laughs> it's just because it eats so much of your life, and then you're like, "What am I gonna do now?" And Would you're you like, like "There's like eight other things I'd like to write about." Mm. Yeah. No, and I think I mean I, I imagine I will probably still have things to say about Pittsburgh and the industrialization or post-industrial cities at various points, but um, definitely not for book two. I would like. More, um, I would like different research locations. I have come uh, to understand the value of selecting your topic based on where the archives are. Ah, uh, oh yeah. Having spent That's smart. a winter in Hamilton doing research. Yeah. Not, not smart. That makes sense. Yeah. Be like one of 
Eric from our program who studies the Caribbean? Yeah, studying the Caribbean is not a bad move. <laughs> uh, I had a friend who did that, and she was, you know, seriously in archives in the Bahamas. I was like, I, just, I almost don't believe you. <laughs> I feel like I couldn't do it. It'd be too nice outside. I'd be like, mm, I can't do, I can't uh, yeah, do this. I, I have to be outside. Like. <laughs> Wait, research time? Mm, nah, I don't need it. Are you open at night? <laughs> I just want to be on the beach during the day. Do you ever feel, based on what you've done before, you know, whether it was articles or books that you've written, that later people try to put you in boxes, or do you have you found in your career that you're able to change it up so far? No, uh, yeah, and I think that part of that is, um, I mean, yes, yes, and no. Like for instance, I I'm going to, was asked to participate in a seminar on kind of small cities and deindustrialization in April. And it's close, and I know some of the people involved, and it sounds like it's a great program, so I'm doing it. But there's definitely a way in which I'm just like, oh, this is not really what I'm working on anymore. I'm surprised mm-hmm. I'm being asked to do this. But I think that uh, one of the things I hadn't fully realized is, you know, my book came out in 2016. It's now 2019, apparently. Um, <laughs> still getting used to that but um, you know and then by the time your book gets reviewed it's usually usually a year or two so then mm-hmm. it came out 2017 2018 uh, it should be coming out in paperback hopefully in the next year which means it might actually get assigned in the class so there's like a big mm-hmm. lag between when you actually publish this book that feels like the culmination of all of this work you've been doing yeah. and when other people notice see it, it and yeah. see it as your work right um, so I th- yeah so I, I don't but I don't feel like I've been pigeonholed um, so much but I also haven't published yet on my new project mm-hmm. so to the extent that um, I mean I think that I will have to start publishing before people start asking me to do too much on the new project right, so you know right. what's happening but but I will say that um, I co-edit a blog and uh, have been involved with a new professional organization and will be co-editing a sort of book series um, oh, wow on global urban history, which is mm-hmm. where my new work, I think, is more comfortable. And so because of that, I mean, my first project is on the U.S. and Canada. It's transnational. It's sort of pitched in this North Atlantic or somewhat global context. So it wasn't like I wasn't um, already that stuff or talking to those people. But um, just by virtue of being involved in those things, I think it's been an easier transition into this new area. Um, okay. Because... A lot of the people I now know, I know because I commissioned them to write blog posts. Oh, okay. Because I know them through this professional organization. Yeah. So there's, you know, they just know me. They don't necessarily know me They're because not, they know my work. Right, right, okay. <laughs> right? And so they, they, if they know at all what I'm doing, it's, it's the new work. So it hasn't made it harder for, you know, purposes of conference panels and those okay. sorts of things that I think might it might be harder to shift away. But I do know, I mean, like anecdotally, anecdotally, I do know this happens to people, and particularly with people with far bigger books than mine. You know, mm. like if you win a bunch of book awards, or you know, if you're Tom Segrew, mm-hmm. everyone still asks you to talk about Origins of the Urban Crisis. Yeah. However many years later, and however many books later. Right. right. Uh, okay. It's not like obviously he's getting asked to talk about lots of different things, but. But nobody ever forgets that book because mm. it was so important. Um, right. So I think that, you know, anecdotally, I think that there there is a way you <laughs> you never get away from from the research. Yeah, we just saw, like, um, last week or, like, the week before. I'm losing track of time already. But, like, we saw Woodward and Bernstein. Like, oh, I went yeah. with my friend Laura, like, out to, like, Macomb. And, like, and they were there. And so, like, most of what 
the person asked them was about Watergate. And I think that, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, they're trapped in this. And I think especially now, because there's inevitably so many comparisons right, between right. Nixon's White House and what's going on now, that it's even more, like, the world, like, Ken, is there any way we can focus in on all of Watergate to see if there's something that they didn't do then that we should be doing now yeah. to mm. speed this process up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I got from the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe people weren't thinking that, but that was the vibe. <laughs> so. No, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you say what's word in Bernstein. It's, it's just one thing that comes to mind unless you've read everything they've done. Yeah. Which most people probably yeah. haven't. Also, I'm going to just go out there and say it. I did not realize they were both still alive. I mean, I know they have co-published relatively recently, but it's one of those. It's like Henry Kissinger. Every time someone mentions him, I'm yeah. quite not dead. Not dead, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like they fall into that category. Yeah, Henry Kissinger especially, but, like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm like, hmm, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I didn't didn't know that that, um, Bob Woodward is still, like, an associate editor at the Washington Post. Yeah, yeah, I I did, so that would imply that I should know he's not dead. You thought Bernstein was dead? (laughs) I guess I thought Bernstein was dead. (laughs) For the record, as of right now, they're not. They're still alive. (laughs) And well. Yeah. We wish them health. 37, everyone's good. That we know of. Fingers crossed. This is going to be really big. Everyone's going to hear this podcast and be like, these women. It would be really bad for us if, like, something unfortunate happened. I'll I'll just take it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just take (laughs) this section out. We've never talked about this. We just jumped to something else. If something happens to Kissinger, you could leave it in. That's fine. Yeah, I think you should say that. I'll own that one. I mean, he did meet with the Donald, so kind of. Wow. So you said you knew you wanted to write on deindustrialization. How did you, like, zoom in on that in the world of, like, things you can focus on? How did you know this is what I wanted that to do? That was my topic. You know, I actually started off when I applied to grad school. I was really interested in writing about public housing mm. um, and then decided I didn't think I really had anything specific to say about public housing. Yeah. And the other thing that had really... And so, you know, I grew up in Michigan. Uh, I had a lot of family members who were not in Traverse City, obviously, but around the state who'd worked for the auto industry, both in the plants and, in you know, middle management. Um, and so had been following that story, saw Detroit in the 90s, mm-hmm. which, you know, was what it was. Um, and then after I did my master's, while I was doing my master's, we did some, I should say, we, we did some class projects in like Rochester and Syracuse, New York, which are deindustrialized cities, um, Syracuse more so. And then when I was working as a consultant after I graduated with my master's, which is in historic preservation planning, so I was working for a consulting firm. They would just send me out, usually into semi-rural Pennsylvania, it seemed like, <laughs> um, to do these architectural surveys. Because so I was driving around you know, upstate New York, Western Pennsylvania a lot, um, parts of New England, and I would just keep seeing the same sort of la- landscape, very similar landscapes over and over, and I, I always did sort of wonder, like, how, you know, how does this thing happen um, right. that, that, and nobody intervenes, or how is there no public policy that can stop this kind of economic devastation, and so I, it was something I'd always been curious about, um, and I will say, I mentioned Origins of the Urban Crisis, obviously, that was a very influential book for me, which I had assigned countless times, both in my master's program and my PhD program, right? Um, but, uh, so I, and that's sort of how I came to that topic, and I was I was interested in knowing how cities um, were were allowed 
to decline in this way. And then as I was researching and writing, I became much more interested. I, I mean, I guess what I realized as I was doing my research was that it wasn't just that they were allowed, it was sort of a planned thing, uh, right? Okay. Uh, that that uh, it makes a lot of money for a lot of people to let these sorts of things happen and then revitalize in particular ways or, mm. um, you know, to allow... You know, is, certain types of business agendas to come in. Yeah. Um, and so I, I became a little more interested in um, the, the planning to sort of for the post-industrial planning. Like the idea that people recognize, even if they don't acknowledge, um, that the decline is coming and how are they kind of projecting what they're going to do to get through that decline, which is almost never save the steel industry. Mm. Um, and, you know, not to, to... I don't want to be entirely unfair. It's not like people had amazingly great ideas. I think a lot of people were just overwhelmed at trying to deal with the projected changes that were coming yeah. for these regions. A lot of people made terrible self-serving anti-labor decisions too, mm -hmm. and I, I would say that that is the bigger bigger part of that. Um, but you know, not everybody was sort of complicit in, in um, trying to recapitalize you know, these sites or whatever. So what kind of primary sources did you look at? Did you look at like city planning sources, city sources, labor oh, no, sources? Yeah, no, it's okay. Right. Yeah. I was I was rambling. Yeah. No, 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 that's okay. Yeah, so a lot of it was city planning records, and so a lot of those were actually, I mean, not published published documents, but sort of city planning reports that are just sitting in libraries. Those sorts okay. of semi semi published. So like a documents. public library or yeah, so public libraries, university libraries. Um, I look, you know, I sort of look at federal state, provincial, provincial, and then local public policy. So I was in all of those archives. Okay. Um, Pittsburgh has a really good set of archives, Hamilton less so. Mm. Um, so in Hamilton, I was in the Hamilton Public Library. And a lot of my sources there were clippings files. Mm. Um, and so newspapers, and, right? Yeah, newspaper yeah. clippings. Uh, and they had Chamber of Commerce okay. you know, reports. Yeah. But the Chamber of Commerce didn't have records that were available to do research in. And, and they had some city council meeting minutes, but they were generally not very helpful. So to find, you know, you'd sort of be like, oh, it looked like something happened relative to what I'm looking into on this date. And then you'd have to go look through the newspapers to find some coverage of it because uh, they, you know, they're very spare minutes. Right. You, you know that a subject was discussed, but not who was involved in discussing it or what was said, um, which okay. is infuriating. And, uh, and in Pittsburgh, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a labor archive at the University of Pittsburgh that's fantastic. So I was actually working in a lot of uh, the records of a couple of um, union activist groups that had organized outside of their unions, which they saw as taking a too conservative approach to things, mm. which is quite interesting. Those were unprocessed, so that was fun. I was sort of digging through <laughs> unprocessed papers, which I'd never done before and thought was really, really cool. Um, so yeah, but a lot of city government records, a lot of um, federal government, state, did you have to kind of teach yourself how to read them, or like had you had like had you looked at things like that before? I had so my my preservation program was through a planning department, okay. uh, and so yeah, I feel like because I feel like it's not if you don't do that work, it's not intuitive of yeah. how to read the report. No, it's technical. It's like you're reading technical right? Yeah, basically, and I and so I yeah I did having contributed to producing some of those <laughs> reports had a sense of how to read them, mm -hmm. um, and the same with the city planning uh, or. Uh, Sorry, the like the some of the national planning documents, but um, but yeah, some of it can be an oddball kind of thing to read because yeah. they're just incredibly repetitive, um, and it seems I mean it is often very boring to read, but it can be hard to figure out what to pull out 
Right. Like what something actually means. Yeah. Um, like they say this, but yeah. how did it look yeah. in real life? Or you what do those numbers actually mean? Yeah, did you have to deal with a lot of statistics? No, I probably oh. should have dealt with more statistics, particularly based on a review of my book from an economist. Um, <laughs> but I'm okay with we that. We avoid that I in our field, yeah, I think, yeah. a lot. I mean, not everyone does, and more power to them, but... Um, <laughs> Numbers are... You're not alone. I'm not a number person. <laughs> hey, yeah. those yeah. who can do, those who can't, don't. It's just <laughs> not a numbers person. I had some statistics, but I was not, you know, I was not crunching my own numbers. Right, maybe borrowing them and using... Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That was the funniest part when I worked at CNN is like, um, they were always like, you can cite statistics, but don't, don't do the math. We're librarians. We're not mathematicians. Right, right. Math. <laughs> I, like I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. I'm I like not that. A, I'm not a mathematician. Yeah. I'm going to keep. I'm going to use that spot. now. I'm, not a yeah. <laughs> I'm a librarian, not a mathematician. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. You have another question? Sure. I feel like you're just coming to me. Well, so like um, I ask interspersed questions. You touched on like your new book, and I read about it online. But could you tell us what it's about? It's a good question. You might be able to do a better job of it than I can right now, uh, having more recently read whatever is on my department profile. No, so I'm writing, I'm looking at um, sort of the, the international dispersion of ideas about uh, urban development, economic development, and sort of international, how they link up with ideas about international development mm. after 1945. And I'm particularly looking at how they're refracted through international organizations and carried around by academics, um, mm. especially American academics, but also some Canadian and some British. Um, so, you know, I've been looking at the UN, uh, although not yet in primary source form. Um, yeah. I will look at, I hope to look at World Bank records sometime in the next five years. But Those are hard to They're get hard to get into. into I, haven't, right? I haven't even tried yet um, yeah. because the, I know that the World Bank is central to one of the projects I'm looking at and I'm not sure where else they're going to come up. So it doesn't mm. seem worth bothering until I know exactly what I need because right. it's difficult. You don't want to jump through the now. hoops. Yeah. Um, and what else am I looking at? Oh, the Ford Foundation is, is probably the main actor. And then, um, so three of the things I'm writing about, sort of the three of the place-based things I'm looking at, that I know for sure I'm looking at, are Urban Renewal in Calcutta, which was a Ford mm-hmm. Foundation and later World Bank. Um, sponsored project, um, Ciudad Guiana in Venezuela, which is a bit of a problem because getting to Venezuela right now is not something that I'm going to, you know, be able to do. Right. Um, and, you know, and I'm not a Latin Americanist and I don't, I can read a little Spanish, but I don't speak it. And so it's not a place I, you know, would be able to travel to right now. Um, so, and that was a Harvard-MIT joint project. Mm. Um, and then something called the American Yugoslav Project, uh, which was actually for a while run out of Wayne State by a yeah. professor at Wayne State, uh, which I'm giving a talk at at the Humanities Center Conference, if you're interested in hearing more, <laughs> April 5th, Mary. Uh, but that was sort of a technical planning exchange that was also a Ford Foundation project. So the Ford Foundation, the Ford Foundation is just fascinating in terms of um, its various... Yeah, they have more... I hadn't thought about that much reach. And they had a huge reach. And they, yeah. I mean, they were doing a lot of um, international urban programs in the, really the 60s and early 70s, but like the Calcutta stuff starts up, I guess, early 60s. They were looking into it in the 50s. And then they stop, um, sort mm. of coincident with their endowment taking a hit. Um, around the time of the oil crisis, and they reevaluate what they're doing, and they they've done a major study about uh, what direction they should be taking with their international urban, specifically urban programs, and I it's you know this is something that I haven't looked into too much yet, but it seems that the decision is essentially that this is just 
unmanageable and too expensive and we can't we're going to reel back in and focus on American cities but hmm. yeah so I'm interested in this I'm interested again in this idea of how models develop how they circulate I'm interested in challenging the idea that kind of urban development models always go from north to south and in fact some of these things are changed or developed in the global south and come back to the north oh, um, interesting. and I'm interested particularly uh, or I just say getting more and more interested in how um American models for educating planners get translated or get moved around along with some of these project ideas. Because mm. that was a lot of the Ford Foundation programs, and the State Department got involved in funding some of this stuff too. They funded the American Yugoslav Project as well. They were really interested in, as, as part of this um, democracy building Cold War notion, the idea that an American type of expertise was something that was going to help shore up these kinds of projects. Oh, okay. They saw they initially saw urban planning as something that was um, apolitical, <laughs> which is <laughs> fascinating. Uh, it's as though none of them lived through urban renewal, which right. was going on at the time that they were doing this. But you know, they saw they you know there's some ridiculous quote from one of only one a of particular the type of person would think that it's, it's apolitical. Yeah, 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 and they said it was like math. Right? Yeah, like yeah. Mathematics, like it's just a. But I mean, that's a particular view of urban planning is is a hard science. Right. Which was becoming popular at the time and okay. not true. But um, but yeah, so that's you know in a nutshell. I, I guess I'm trying to look at this intersection of urban and international development. So how long does a project? So you have your first book. Yes. So you feel like a little less stress or yeah, more I stress? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. I, they can't fire me now. Yeah. So so how long does a project like that take? That's a good question. And, like, is there a push to, like, get it done, like, within a certain time period? That's also a good question. (laughs) I mean, so yes and no. I think it depends on where you are, Mm. whether or not there's a push to get it done in a certain time period. Um, I wouldn't say that I... I mean, I also... I got tenure in 2017, so you can't even go up for full here until you've been in rank five years. So Mm. 17 plus five would be 22. 22. Uh, see, math. <laughs> Not, we shouldn't have done it. Oh no, we cannot do math. Right? We, it took us all too long uh, to be able to do that. But you know, so there's certainly not going to be any pressure on me until then because mm-hmm. that's really what the the pressure is about is moving through rank. Um, but uh, at least at, at Wayne State. Okay. You know? um, so but, they want you to focus more on teaching or no, other things. No, they still want or? me to focus on research. Okay. Um, but they, you know, there's just. With when you're pre-tenure, right, you've got six years or maybe seven, depending on where you are, to get done what you need to get done for tenure, which for historians at research universities is typically a first book and some semblance of progress on a second project. And what that looks like varies wildly. And if you're mm-hmm. in an Ivy League institution, you know, it, again, varies wildly and your book better win. 25 awards, right? Mm, yeah. Um, so, but generally, that's the case. And there's a lot of pressure on you because if you don't do it in that time frame, you get fired. And then they uh. have to replace you. And as we all know, the state of higher education is not one in which everyone gets replaced. Um, right. And so then they might lose the line and suddenly you don't have someone to teach that field. So there's uh. a whole lot bound up in getting people tenure. Mm-hmm. And then once they get tenure... Presumably, you know, everybody's kind of locked in. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't fire me, except for cause, if I did something. Right. They could potentially fire me, but I should probably stop saying this in case someone takes it as a challenge. Um, But, uh, so there isn't a lot of pressure, and there's a lot, I'm sure you have heard faculty members complain about this, there is a tremendous service burden on associate professors. Oh, that was going to be my next question about 
you know, all this work that you're doing research-wise, travel-wise, writing, that's a lot of work. And then on top of that, you're a teacher as well, a professor, teaching how many classes a semester? So two. And then also everything else that falls under, I don't know, admin, service? Service, 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 yes. Service is a lot of it. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, it's like, it sounds like three jobs. It's a lot. Almost. It's me. a lot. Yeah. yeah. And it's particularly hard, you know, I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot harder on, I, you know, I, my inclination is to say it's a lot harder on women with children. It is, mm-hmm. on, I would say, the, maybe the fair way to say that, although that is the true way to say that, right? It is, it is a lot harder on a caregiving parent. Right. right? Okay. So yeah. maybe that's the man sometimes but that you know it's typically not the case that right who's got the largest burden of child care still so um you know everyone's kind of working what was it second shift um, yeah so you know I don't have that but that also means I don't have a good reason not to work at night and on the weekends because there are no children demanding <laughs> my time instead I periodically think I should get a puppy I was gonna say do you have yeah. fur children I do not have fur children I would like one I would like um, so I just have my Instagram goats and dogs that I follow <laughs> as though they are my own. Do you follow Juniper Fox? No. Oh, it's this fox. Oh, it's so cute. I'll have to check that out. It's this, it's this fox that got adopted. Yeah, and then like, and then like they'll show pictures of like she has like tons of animals. So she's got like another fox, and then she's got like dogs that live with the. With the fox, but like wow. yeah, she's like the fox the hound. It's very yeah. cute. I am a big fan of goats of anarchy, which mm-hmm. is a goat rescue, and many of the goats have bionic limbs, and wow. it's really cute. I mean, it's also very sad, but they're very cute on their bionic limbs. Anyway, so I recommend goats of anarchy. But no, I would say like as far as pressure goes, like I don't think there's a there's an institutional pressure not on me particularly or our department particularly mm-hmm. but at Wayne I mean I think this is true at a lot of similar types of institutions it takes people longer than the institution would like to move from associate professor to full professor mm. and a lot of that is this service like the and part of it too right you know um, they've been cutting back, I'm sure you guys have noticed this, on administrative staff around yeah. the university for a whole host of reasons. So faculty are doing... I mean, one of the things that I do that was not anyone's job in the department... I'm not the only person who does this, but there are a crew of us that could add Williams does some of it too. Um, we do the department website. Mm. And that used to be someone's job in the college. Um, okay, yeah. And it's not anymore. So, there, I mean, there are a lot of those sorts of things. Like Jennifer Hart runs the Twitter account. I mm-hmm. run the Facebook page. There are a lot of things that would normally be admin jobs that are now faculty jobs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's that's sort of been rolling downhill. And so the, the Wayne as an institution is concerned about this time between, you know, promotion to associate and promotion to fall. And they've got some new initiatives to try and help with that. Mm. But I, I don't know that, I don't, I can't speak for anyone else in the department, but I don't think there's a lot of pressure in our department. Yeah. Um, because of that, because people know why it is that it takes time. It's right. because of the, the work that needs to get done. I mean, everybody in the department knows, right? We used to have three people working in the front office. Now we have one person working in the front office, and that means faculty are now taking on parts of those jobs. And those roles. That. So I don't, I, you know, I shouldn't, I don't know, I can't, like I said, I shouldn't speak for people who aren't me. Um, but <laughs> You're I think feeling like, it. I feel internal pressure. Yeah, like, I feel okay. a lot of internal pressure, and part of it is, I think I'm a little different from a typical academic, and that I like to finish things and meet deadlines. Like, I, you know, I, I'm very deadline-oriented. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of people are, and this is not 
necessarily a bad thing, actually, who, who say, you know, this thing I've written isn't ready. I need more time with it. It's not intellectually where I want it. Um, and so sometimes what that does is lead you to hold on to something a little longer and make it great. Sometimes it's you hold on to it and just putter. Yeah. Um, I'm just like, here's my B-plus work. <laughs> Go ahead and publish it. But it's under but deadline. It's, but, it's, I, but I met the deadline, which, you know, <laughs> has its benefits and drawbacks. But, um, but so I think I feel, I feel like, you know, in my head, I, I, would not, I would like this book not to take more than seven years from when my first book was published in 2016. Right. Um, but now we're in 2019, so I guess that's four more years. And I'm not sure that feels totally feasible, you know? So yeah. Are, well, I feel like you need... Yeah. To decompress. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of decompressing probably too much. I think it starts to wander into procrastination. Mm. <laughs> but we shouldn't but. have to work all the time. This yeah, is the thing, that's, right? that's how I feel. Yeah. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ellie and I both do jobs outside of this. Ellie yeah. has, we both have two jobs outside of school. Plus two. we're both full-time students. So yeah, it's like. That's a lot. Yeah. Just want to watch goat videos on YouTube or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you had worked as a um, what do you call it the, after your master's? Oh, I was a consultant. Consultant. Um, yeah, for a cultural resource management firm. Right, preservation stuff, yes. and and then why did you decide to go back and like what drew you to academia and like PhD work? And I thought before I applied to the master's program, uh, I'd. I thought about going straight into a PhD program or trying to. Who knows how successful I would have been, but that, you know. But I wasn't just, I went to Michigan for undergrad, you mentioned, and it was in many ways a good college experience, in some ways not, and mm -hmm. one of the ways that it wasn't was that I never felt like I had any connection with my professors. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, like the classes that I remember the best, um, or the best experiences for me, were taught by TA, not TAs, but taught by grad students. It's sort of a summer class, where mm -hmm. they had their own class. And I remember when I applied to my master's program, I didn't know the people I asked to write for me were grad students. They're like, no, you need to ask a real professor. And oh. I was like, but you were my professor. You know, I just didn't, yeah, didn't yeah. they taught the class. I didn't have any understanding of what that meant. Um, and so I didn't know that I wanted to teach, and I didn't have any concept of college being any other way than that way. Mm -hmm. um, although, you know, I had friends who went to liberal arts colleges, and they had different kinds of relationships that also didn't sound terribly appealing. Uh, so I wasn't sure I wanted to, it was not. That sounded bad. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, that was not what I meant. But, so I wasn't sure I wanted to teach, um, and I didn't really want to be one of those professors who, you know, never had time to talk to the students. Mm. Um, and uh, so I did this master's because I was interested in architect history and architecture and architectural history, and it seemed like it would be a good combination of those things. And I liked the job I had, aside from the fact that I traveled constantly, which was mm. not, I mean, also to rural Pennsylvania. Yeah, so you weren't traveling to the Caribbean. Little, yeah, the Caribbean, it might have been a little different. But hey, she wanted to visit those Amish people, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They I needed was, help. I well. really enjoyed eating my dinners at gas stations because oh, the diners no. closed at four. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like these sorts of, way too many, like, 7-Eleven dinners. But, uh, very sad. But uh, I, the thing that, aside from that, the thing that I didn't love about that job was I never got to pick my own research topics, right? Oh, so yeah. So I really like 
research and writing. Like I, I loved the kind of research I did um, as like that kind of consultant, you know, and it was, you know, you'd be at a local historical society and a lot of it was looking at county histories and trying to research, I don't know, like the, the history of the first sawmill in town. And I liked working with the Sanborn maps and mm-hmm. I liked that they were actually sort of short projects that got finished. That's one of the annoying <laughs> things about academia, right? They're just, they're big and it's yeah. endless and it can overwhelm your life for years and years and you, you don't get discrete things that you get to finish. So I liked all of those things, but the actual topics I was researching would only occasionally be even remotely interesting to me. Um, And they were very rarely did I work on the sort of project um, where any sort of broader historical context mattered. Mm. So you'd you know you'd sort of be relating things to particular kinds of themes. So if I was looking at a sawmill, I would relate it to kind of the history of the region and and um, I don't know maybe hydroelectric production in the United States or something. Mm-hmm. So there would be, you'd, you'd draw some relationship to these bigger themes, but it wasn't very, it was very narrative, um, it wasn't very analytical, and, you know, you weren't making arguments. Right. You weren't, uh, and those were the things that I, I really sort of enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to go back and do the PhD because I thought that was the way to do that. Mm. And That makes sense. Yeah, and now so I got sick of getting sent to rural Pennsylvania. <laughs> did you go by yourself or did you have a partner I or anything? I often went by myself. And, you know, so that was, this was the early 2000s. And I, it must have been a year. I, I worked full-time for that company for two years. And then I worked for them off and on while I was in grad school as well because they were they were based in Boston, uh, but they had an office in New York. So I worked for them for the summer and did some projects for them. So I must have been there a year before they would give me a cell phone. They gave me a phone card. Um, and I finally, like, you know, I, someone ran, like, a truck ran me off this narrow road into a ditch in uh. a rental car in rural Pennsylvania. I have no cell phone, and I'm sort of wandering around trying to decide which door to knock on and hope there's not someone in, who answers it who's going to kill me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately did not end up killed, although did end up sitting around with a creepy guy who came keep an eye on me while I was waiting for, you know, the, the tow truck to come. Yeah. But so there was a lot of that sort of thing. I had friends who got sent to the Dakotas and, you know, oh, wow. um, they'd be out doing surveys and run across meth labs and get sort of chased out. So there was a lot, it, in retrospect, it all seems very unsafe. Um, yeah. I, that's why I asked. I was like, you were yeah, alone. Yeah. No, it was Out ridiculous. on the road. Like. Sometimes I would have a partner, but it was not necessarily because anyone thought through safety issues. Yeah. It was just the sheer size of the project. Ah, like there would okay. be a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you wouldn't necessarily be in the same car. Um, <laughs> maybe you'd have breakfast together. Not really trying to save any money there either. No. The yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, I don't actually think that's how most consulting firms run, at least anymore. We're but sending I, you and Larry, but you guys can drive separately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because then you can cover twice the ground. You know, sure. Serving. Uh huh. Yeah, that, that's, that's why. The, that's totally why. But I did get, I did manage to extract a cell phone after that wow. incident. Um, yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Although, possibly, might not have even had cell service, depending on where you were. No, that's true. A lot of the projects I was working on actually were surveys for cell towers. Oh. Because they needed to put cell towers Interesting. in. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, um, my family's from rural Pennsylvania and uh, rural Appalachian, Kentucky, my like, mother's family. And um, one time we were there, and you, my mom kind of knew her way around, but not 100%. She's a big fan of like the AAA trip ticks. Oh, yeah, yeah. But... It was more recent, so she didn't have one, and we had to get to this hospital, and I was like, 
trying to use my phone, but you're in the mountains yeah. and you can't. And her OnStar worked. Oh. I was like, thank goodness. <laughs> I can't <laughs> help bad. you yeah. drive these mountain roads. Why were you trying to get to the hospital? My grandfather was in the hospital okay, at the time. I was like... and yeah, he was from really rural, like the point where if, the, if it flooded, you couldn't get across the bridge. He was from really rural Kentucky. Oh, wow. And then my um, mom's other side of the family was from Shemokin in Pennsylvania, which is a really tiny, small town. I thought maybe you ran across it, but no. No. It's where um, Wise Potato Chips are from. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. so that's where my family's from. You guys got to talk about where you were born, so yeah. I... We were born in the same place. Okay. I was born in Detroit at a hospital that no longer exists. All right. <laughs> All right. Just I'd throw that out there. It's important. You should ask everyone. Yeah, okay. where were you born? The Midland Hospital... Does still exist. I was just there. Oh yeah. So. Everything okay? With me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have not been back since I was born, <laughs> to my knowledge. To Midland at all, or the hospital? The hospital. You're like, I don't go to Midland. Midland. To the hospital. That's why she's like Midland. <laughs> <laughs> I know one of my college roommates was from Midland, and I would drive her home sometimes. Aw, cute. It's Midland. <laughs> it's it's really nice compared to the other Tri Cities, but then like people have a hard time getting over the fact that like. Dow kind of owns the town. So oh, yeah. If you can jump that hurdle, you'll have a nice time. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> it is nice. Do you have any more questions on your list? <laughs> no. No? You don't have any more? Mm-mm. I had one, but I might have forgotten it. <sighs> I had a comment on a question. Okay. I think, like, part of, this is going back, but, like, part of just turning in your B-plus work to, like, your editor, that's what your editor gets paid for, is to turn it from a B-plus an A minus. That's actually not true. <laughs> That's what they should get paid for. Otherwise. That's what CNN editors get paid for. I was going to say, we is don't that pay more them like... Well. <laughs> I, I was going to ask about that. For editors for an academic book, I kind of understand the job of an editor for an academic journal, because mm-hmm. I know one. But an, for an academic book, what like what's their background? Who are... Yeah, is it more grammar? Because I've read a lot of academic books where they clearly didn't do a great job, because I'm like, that is not grammatically correct. <laughs> That's the co- that should be the copy editors. Right. <laughs> um, well, it depends. So, like, my book uh, was published with Pen Press, and my I, the editor who is the editor of the series that I was in. I mean, he's the acquisitions editor for the series. He has a PhD, the like history mm-hmm. PhD, not modern America, but you know, history, actually, um, but uh, history PhD. And he was very hands on through the. Um, the contract process, they sort of, you know, the the peer review process, that sort of stuff, and did a lot of editing of the introduction, actual, what you imagine, sort of line editing, like, like your best professors do, kind Mm -hmm. of line editing, um, but not of the entire manuscript, Hmm. and it really varies wildly, um, but in general, it's, at least it's my understanding that most publishing houses, certainly academic presses, but even some of the popular presses, they simply don't have that capacity anymore. Right. That um, that, that is either farmed out or they expect you to have managed that before you get to them. Uh, um, okay. And so they're not uh, they're not doing that kind of content editing, and they're not content special. So they're, they're reliant on the, the peer review for the content. Right. right? Um, which is not at all like editing that happens for a newspaper or a, a, mag, a non-academic magazine where you've got people who are tracking down, the fact checkers, you know, mm-hmm. no one fact checks academic books, right. right? So, I mean, when I when I do peer review, I don't know if your dates are right. I mean, I don't know if my dates are right half the time. I double check my own dates, but right. I never know 
Um, if you have, you know, if something happened, you say something happened on April 4th, 1962, I don't know if that's true or not. Mm -hmm. um, but whereas that's what fact checkers actually do. Right. So it's interesting to talk to academics, and I have not done this, but who have published op-eds or have published, you know, the places like The New Yorker, they just get, they can't, they get fact checked to death. You know, oh, they have yeah. to provide, they, they're constantly going back and forth about this stuff. I imagine hopefully CNN does some of that. Um, and so... You know, you depending on your acquisitions editor, you may get more or less of that hands-on stuff at some point. Um, if they're particularly interested in your topic, they may do more of that. Okay. But that's not really how their jobs are defined, at, at least at most of these presses. Um, and then, you know, once it goes to copy editing, often that's not done in-house anymore. Mm. Um, Interesting. You are responsible typically for your own index, which means you either have to do mm. it yourself or you have to pay someone to do it. Okay. For me, I have a lot of maps in my book, um, and they initially said, oh, just do mock-ups of how you want them to look, like just cut and paste, you mm -hmm. know, and we'll do it. And then they came back and they said, actually, it's going to cost too much. Can you do the first round of this like, and pay for it? Right. Uh -huh. um, so I paid a, a grad student um, in the planning program to you know do these things, and then they yeah. took them and made them fit the style of the book. Right. But they were sort of reproducing them and tweaking them. They couldn't make them from scratch. And it's the same. You know, you pay. You typically will pay for rights for any images you use in the books. Mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things. So there's a lot that to like archives or yeah. People? Okay. Yeah. So that's how I mean. That's how the Ruther makes a lot of their money is yeah. on licensing photographs. Yeah. Right. But I think there's a subject I didn't realize. You know, when I was in grad school, that it, I would be the one to pay for that. Right. That you yeah. assume the press does that, but yeah. they don't. I mean, I think probably if you're negotiating a second book contract or you have a really big name or you have a really hot topic, you can negotiate more of this stuff up front. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same with the editing. So one of the things that I, I've been I find very interesting uh, there is there's been this kind of rise in developmental editing as a job, um, which is, again, as I understand it, and this is not my field of, you know, work, um, but that's what acquisitions editors used to do more of. They would do this developmental uh -huh. editing where you would go to them with a proposal and they would talk about how they wanted to see it. And again, my editor did some of that with my proposal because I was moving from dissertation to book. Right. But they're not always, they're not all going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they're not all going to... You just sort of imagine that an editor might be like a, an advisor who's mm -hmm. going to read everything and give you notes on it. Yeah. And that's not the case. No. So okay. a lot of people... I mean, I don't actually... I don't know if anyone, if any of my colleagues have ever done this, but I know people at other institutions who hire developmental editors who do all of that with them mm. um, from sort of the point of inception. Or they'll hire their own kind of copy editors... Um, to you know, or just sort of an editor, uh, even to, to take a journal article and go through it with that kind of eye before it goes through the peer review process. Right. And sort of anecdotally, I hear it, it shortens the peer review process. Right. You usually turn something more polished in. Um, same with the book process. Mm. Um, a lot of, in fact, you'll notice if you go through um, people's what do you call it the thing. Acknowledgements. <laughs> like the thing I actually always read first in a book because I want to know who they yeah. used to be married to or whatever, you know. There's always some, often something scandalous in the acknowledgements if you look hard enough. But um, you'll start seeing some names pop up over and over and they're, they're these editors. And they don't okay. identify them that way. They don't right. say thanks to my developmental editor. Right. But, and, they're um, kind of like, they're not ghostwriters, but... No, no, no. But yeah, in the, um, that's also come up more with like... Again, this isn't a go. It's not ghostwriting, but like with 
people who are, have already become famous and they want to write a book, like a novel or yeah. whatever, they have someone that they're working with because yeah. they're not a trained right. in literature. They're not trained in how you write a theme, all that kind of stuff. They're just, they have a name. They have a story they want to tell. But yeah. They don't know how to write a book. Right. And I think that they were working with a developmental editor yeah, is what yeah. you call and they, them. And they do it, you do it for fiction, too. Yeah. And for fiction, too. And there's a, um, there's a company that, does, I mean, there's probably more than one, but there's one that has been, I've been seeing on, pod, like, I listen to this podcast called Am Writing. Do you know the Am Writing podcast? Mm-hmm. I like the Am Writing podcast, and they've had this woman on a couple of times, because one of them, they're both nonfiction writers who mainly write about parenting, um, uh-huh. and uh, one of them wanted to write a novel and didn't know how to write she knows how to write, she knows how to write a book, right. she wrote a New York Times bestseller, but it wasn't a novel, <laughs> Casual. right? And so, yeah, right, um, this is, yes, um, and so she's working with one of these developmental editors to write a novel because she didn't, you know, she had a good idea and she had good characters, mm-hmm. and, but she needed someone to sort of say, this is extraneous information that nobody wants to read. Right. So in that way, that really is what editors used to do mm-hmm. when they, they were more of well, maybe fewer people trying to write books, I don't know, but they could be more hands-on, and I, it, I think it is more akin to what an advisor would do for a student, so mm-hmm. yeah, like ghostwriting isn't the right term, which no. implies, because um, it's still your kind of your own product. Your intellectual work, yeah. but it's just like having, or you know, if you're in a writing group with friends, yeah. and you've got someone who gives you really good edits, mm-hmm. it's like that, you're just paying for it, right? right? Um, okay. And that used to be... Again, I gather something that was embedded more in the actual publishing process. Interesting. I'm glad you talked about that because I somehow charmed myself to be on a panel at a uh, university press conference that'll be here really? at Wayne State in June. Interesting. I don't do anything with university press. What, what is the panel? The panel is about. Um, social media so uh, when I was at AHA yeah I'm good at that when I was at AHA I talked to a woman and then she gave my contact information to this other woman who was putting this panel together and so it's I looked more at the proposal and like they listed all the names and they're all editors or like people from presses like (laughs) University of Wisconsin Madison's press and such and such press and it's like (laughs) Rachel Manella Wayne State University Department of History Okay. Sure. So (laughs) I come up with something to say. I think you're in a really great position because you know a lot of grad students where you could do a general survey about what students do when they're trying to publish. And so then that could be a a great way for you to glean a lot of information is to just be like, hey, buddies, give me your information. (laughs) Let me talk to me about. (laughs) Tell me about your experience. But it's specifically on social media. Yeah, it's about getting um, kind of the word out and how do you attract scholars to the press. and and I And also about how... um, and I think I don't think it's I think it's mostly about university presses, but it's also about journals, and uh, things like that. So, it's a very vague uh, panel description, but apparently their panel got accepted. And I'm on it. So Excellent. <laughs> everyone can show up and watch me <laughs> bullshit my way through a panel about social media and you and, and yeah yeah. <laughs> don't know. I just we have faith in you. Talk to this woman at AHA a lot. Yeah, I feel like this is the sort of thing you can just put a call out on Twitter about. And Very then possible. Report what you heard back. Right. Uh, yeah. Academic chatter. That's a big. Well, hashtag. I mean, if you want more detail, tweet out like tweet out a link to like a Google form that you created so people can add all these comments. I'm gonna ha- hire Allie as my. Uh, data. I'm good with data. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Put that on the top of every resume. I'm good with data. <laughs> I'm good with data. Not quantitative, though. <laughs> Just qualitative. Well, depends if the statistic is already done. <laughs> can use that. Like, if so many works. people died in the mine, there's a number I can't mess up. <laughs> good job. Thank you. So we always ask the same two. Did we ask both last time? You say always. I'm your second interview. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But we have our first episodes just the two of us. And we asked each other. We did. All right. right. We're setting a precedent. It's a a really tough. It's a really tough question. What are you binge watching right now? Or watching? What have you been watching? On streaming or TV or anything? So many different things though. Um, Whatever you're willing to admit to. We've been watching. Um, we've been rewatching The Good Wife, okay. which I really liked. Yeah. But we've been watching this uh, sex education show on oh, Netflix, yeah. which has Gillian Anderson. Oh, okay. And a bunch of British teenagers. Is that Asia Butterfield necessarily my favorite? That's the guy who plays the lead. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. I follow Netflix on Instagram, and he's on there a lot now <laughs> doing promos. Yeah, I saw the ad for that, but I haven't watched that one yet. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, I want to give you something that I actually like that's fine I watched Babylon Berlin we just watched that mm. which that my Facebook feed was like insanely in love with this summer mm. and I was really bored <laughs> you didn't you weren't a fan I was not super I mean I kind of got into it towards the, it's dubbed and I think that that just was off rather than enough that reading it it was dubbed yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but no I feel like there has not been a show that I've been I think we've been watching a lot of these um, kind of Amazon Netflix originals lately, mm-hmm. and I haven't been super into any of them. So I'll recommend One Day at a Time. Oh, yeah. It's a really good one. It's in it's season comedy, three now. Comedy no comedy at all. But it deals I mean, with really interesting no issues. Comedy, but yeah. I mean, also, I watched the original, so it's nice. It's very different. Yeah. It's not even like that one okay. at all. It's all like. Right. Really different. I haven't started watching it, but I'm going to the Lorena special oh on Lorena gosh, Bobbitt yes. that Jordan Peele yes. did. It's yeah, available like now too. on yeah. Amazon. Oh. Yeah, I would like to see that as well. Well, I mean, it's, it's Lorena Bobbitt's story, and then it's Jordan Peele, and you're just like, this seems like a good comedy. <laughs> yeah, no, the internet seemed also. I was like very excited about that a couple yeah. of months ago, and it must have been released. But no, I'm trying to think of something. Well, it's sort of interesting because the way you're trying to go for better. No, I'm just trying. Like, I feel like I want to make a good recommendation. Uh. I can't think of like the last thing I was really, really into. So, I don't know either. What about reading? What have you been reading lately? Besides students' papers? I've been reading, (laughs) this is, I've been reading very serious literature. No, I've been reading, um, I'm in the third book of a mystery series called The Maisie Dobbs. Oh, yeah, I started those. Yeah. I did not finish, but. I. Just being honest. Um, I find some parts of the, the conceit of her being the sort of like meditating psychologizing World War One veteran and mm-hmm. I'm actually a little tedious but um, <laughs> otherwise I like Cousin Mystery yeah. so that's what I've been meaning aside from the internet um, oh no stay away from that Yeah. internet's dangerous yeah. you have anything new since the last time we that talked? that I'm reading? yeah are you still oh, what are you reading? oh I'm reading this book that's on the new York cold case uh-huh. division of the police department. That's intense. So it's really interesting and like it's it's older, like I think it's from like 2004, 2005 and so like some of the statistics are dated and it's kind of interesting because since this book has been published, they've arrested some of the cases. Ah, and so I'm, so I'm like... go look them up again. <laughs> well, because some of them, like there's no conclusion like because like the way, I, I'm not really 
fond to a certain extent of the way she like bounces because she'll introduce you to this case and so you're like really invested and you're like oh man tell me how you solve it but then like the next chapter introduces you to a different police officer in a different case and you're like I would like to know if you solved this crime <laughs> very much and so sometimes it's just that I I because I'm very much of a I like the answer right away. Yeah. I don't I don't want to have to like I'm going to read the rest of the book, but I'd like you to tell me now right, if you yeah. catch this criminal. So I'll <laughs> I want to know if I'll, I have to be wary. I'll Google it quick. Yeah. If I need to be worried that someone's murderer is still out on the loose. I'm not reading anything right now except stuff for school. So no fun there. But I did buy three new books. <laughs> so what'd you get? I bought Monster, which is the continuation of a like a YA sci-fi series. So that one's really good. Um, it's and then I bought um, a Discovery of Witches, which is now oh, a TV yeah. show. I want to read. I've really wanted to read the book for a while, so I was like, I gotta buy this book. And then the Secret History. Yeah. By the Dutch woman. Heart? Yeah. I love that book. Okay. I really love. I do, I do not love her other books. And the I really Goldfinch, which was the Pulitzer. I haven't read I that hate one. I hate that book. I got half like that book, and I was just like, this is I don't understand. Yeah, the Secret History's been on my list for a while, and it's very vague. Like, I, ha- I really haven't looked into it. I don't want to find anything out. But, like, the description of it is very vague. Like, these, there's these students and a professor, and things happen. And I'm just like, I want to know what happened. It's good. Yeah, I really, okay. I really like that. Yeah, I really like that book a lot. So I bought those. So I just keep buying books, but I'm not reading any of them. I was reading this study, and I hope it's true, that it shows an aspiration of you that you that you aspire to something if you continue to buy books that oh, you're good. reading. Just, sometimes it shows you have aspirations. Like, you're headed to, toward a goal. Like, ah, you're moving forward. Good. Because you want to read these things. You're not just twirling? <laughs> they not. bring me joy. <laughs> they bring me joy. They bring me joy. No, I'm not a... I am not. I am... I did change how I fold my clothes. Yeah, I. me too. I'm... <laughs> A big fan. I, you know, I have to say, I, I did watch the Kamari or the whatever the Recondo show on Netflix, and I found a couple episodes interesting, but mostly I was bored by it. I mean, I she's adorable. All of them. But I, yeah, I watched the whole thing too, and I, but I found it a little boring. I gotta say. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I read the book a long ah, time okay. ago and changed my folding habits. Yeah. And I, I will agree that it is a life changing yeah. magic, the tidying up. But I, the books spark joy. Like. Okay. I yeah. don't. Although not in the way I don't really feel compelled to go on Twitter and attack her for suggesting that... No, if, not at all. If books just make you feel guilty for having not read them, get them out of your yeah, house. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. No, the... Yeah. You know. And I, I did get... I did... I, I used to tend to never, set, like, give them away or try to sell them to used bookstores or anything like that, give them to the library, but I did do that after watching that yeah. with a couple of books, and I looked at them, and I was like, I will not read these again, because yeah. I liked what she said where she said that books tell people your values. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like these books, I have lots of Nazi books, so it's not like <laughs> I'm like too dedicated to that thinking, but I look I at mean, these. Hopefully they're not like pro-Nazi No, <laughs> research books and the some encyclopedia. of Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Being really conflicted in myself with that bat mitzvah behind me too. Um, but you know, like I liked what she said where I looked at these books and they, they were books I liked, but I was like, I don't, feel the need to have them on my shelf anymore like the, yeah oh I read this like Plato I'm not going to get rid of Plato I want people to know I've I've read all of Plato but <laughs> these <laughs> these other ones I was like I don't need these so yeah. I, I kind of liked what she said that to one of the people she was like oh it was the two guys um the boyfriends that they were younger the, that was the episode I liked the best I yeah yeah I yeah. like that one the best too 
possibly because I related to them a lot. Yeah. One of them tweeted me. I was really happy about it. He had, like, the map. And it was like, they show the picture of this map he had drawn when he was a kid. And it had like Crystal Island and all this different stuff. And I drew a map that almost was identical to that when I was a kid. So I like tweeted to him and he like responded. I was like, okay. <laughs> like a semi-famous person. Yeah. Is that your most famous person who's No. Um, I've been, um, when Portlandia was really big, um, I've interacted with them a bunch. Huh? Uh, I don't know who the person, it was probably some intern or something yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on Twitter. Um, Rainbow Rowell is an author, and she's responded to me. Wow. She's really good. If you want, really, she's great. She writes about Nebraska. And it made me want, like, her books were so good, they made me want to move to Nebraska. And no one says that. No. Yeah. In fact, like, Nebraska has always been the place where... You're like, if I get it... I would leave academia before I would move to this place. And for a lot of people, it's the Deep South. Yeah. For yeah. And for me, it's always been, like, Nebraska. You should read her books. They're really good. Yeah. You might have changed your mind. my mind. <laughs> And that, that's it. That's we don't it. have any more questions for you. Did you have fun? It was fun. Good. Yeah.